Hello, America. I'm Robert Rees, and welcome to CEO Show. We're here today with Mike Gregoire. How are you, Mike? Great, Robert. Great to see you again. Absolutely. And Mike right now is the co-founder partner of Brighton Park, and we're going to talk about private equity. But many of you may remember uh, the last time that I interviewed him, he was CEO of CA Technologies, which everyone knew originally as Computer Associates, and engineered the um, the sale to Broadcom for, I believe it was like $18.9 billion in cash. Yes, it was a big it was a big number. I think it was the largest deal ever done in the software space at the time. Yeah, and, and it was exciting. And so we're going to hear a lot about things like acquisitions. We're going to hear about boards, and we're going to hear Mike has some tremendous leadership insights on every moment matters and and also operating at scale. But let's start off. With, with Brighton Park. So after being an operator and CEO for years and years and years, you went into private equity. And my sense is Brighton Park, while everyone may not know the name, it's sort of setting a model that could be the future of private equity. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think that that's the, the right way to characterize it. It really goes down to my partner, Mark Jaga, who'd spent you know, the majority of his career in private equity and he really observed as he was doing deals, the best companies and the best founders were becoming much more selective of who they took capital from. And what they were really looking for is true partnership. They wanted to be you know, taking money from somebody that's built a sales force, somebody that's built a different product, somebody that launched into a different country. And you know, there's no straight line when you're building companies. Um, you bump into problems, you solve that problem, and you wake up the next day, you got the next problem coming. They wanted to have somebody that's been through that scale. And although not everything is a cookie cutter, and just because you did something well in the past does not mean it's going to work in the future, but you do have pattern recognition. And a young entrepreneur that's building a company wants to have that pattern recognition sitting around the table. And so Mark approached me about Brighton Park, and it was really his vision that got me excited about getting into private equity. And you're doing a lot of work, I know, in technology, but also in healthcare, which is very hot right now because of all of the transformation going on. Talk about some of that. Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, our customers um, are are what we call limited partners. Our investors, their pension funds, their large family offices. Um, there are a lot of foundations. And they're looking for getting return on their capital. And they want to have a portfolio approach of where their capital goes. Some of it, they want it to go into software. Some of it, they want it to go into software-enabled services. And some of it, they want it to go into healthcare because healthcare is one of the fastest growing industries. The amount of capital that's put into healthcare uh, is extraordinary. And it is an industry that is absolutely ripe for reinvention. You're very involved with acquisitions and M&A. Outline some of the mistakes that people need to avoid. And this is a lot of CEOs. They're also buying companies. They're selling companies. Yeah, I think that it, it really starts at the very beginning. What is your strategy and what is your motivation for doing an acquisition? The ones that I see that you just want to avoid is if you're trying to fix a broken company by 
you know, trying to pair it with another company. Um, that's not a reason to do an acquisition. The reason to do an acquisition is to understand uh, economies of scale that are mapped to customer needs. For example, if you have a customer where they are using a particular product, but they could get more value out of that product, or they could get more value in general if they had a second product, that's a reason to do an acquisition because now you can have one salesperson selling both products to the same customer. You can you have the same engineering departments now, so you can try to make these these two products work closer together. And then obviously just the economies of scale. And you have outlined throughout your whole career, since I've known you, and even before that, you were coming up with new leadership models. And one of them is operating at scale. And that's really, you've like 10 issues, anything from a startup to a $19 billion company. And one thing I thought was really interesting when you mentioned one of the 10 was culture. And you have this concept, a whisper at top is a scream at the bottom. Explain that. Well, this this is one that I've observed uh, with myself. Um, and I didn't realize the impact I had on people. Um, and I'm an introvert by nature. So I tend to talk in smaller groups or in very large groups where, you know, I don't feel like I'm, I'm talking to just one particular person. And also communicating with boards as well. So it's really about understanding your voice. Um, you are going to have an outsized uh, impact on people and you need to calibrate you know, the language you use, the tone you use, the frequency of your communication, and everything you say is, is going to be interpreted and you have multiple different constituencies. For example, Robert, you know, I might do a press release Every financial analyst is going to read that press release and they're going to interpret it a certain way. All of my customers are going to interpret that press release a certain way. All of my competitors are going to interpret it a certain way. Maybe companies like Broadcom that want to, you know, are, are looking to buy companies in the software space are going to take it a certain way. My board is going to take it a certain way. If you don't train yourself to really think through you know, the magnitude of your voice, and all the constituencies you're talking to, I think you're going to get surprised and get some unintended outcomes. Interesting. And l let's talk about another one, technology. So you've been in the technology field for ages and ages, really. And, um, and now technology is not a new industry, but it's so fast moving. What advice do you have about operating in technology, about knowing what's next, about knowing what to use and what not to use? I think those are, those are great questions. I think it's really delving down into understanding fundamentally what is changing in technology. Like all of your listeners will know about ChatGPT. And if you grab the Wall Street Journal this morning, they're trying to put a, a pause on the next release of ChatGPT for six months because they want to really understand the magnitude of this and how it affects you know, how it affects from a cultural perspective, how it affects from a legal perspective, and also to a certain extent, how it affects from a moral perspective. As a CEO, you have to be massively interested in these topics, which means you have to dig in and understand what is the difference between, uh, you know, a microservices architecture and a monolith. I mean, that's a very, sounds like a very nerdy concept, but it is going to have 
a profound impact to way to the way that you can scale your company and serve your customers and the new innovation that you can bring uh, to your customers. So I think the most important thing, Robert, is don't get tied up into what's happened in the past. As a leader, you better have a keen eye to what's going on in the future. Okay, a quick question. We're, we're in a commercial in about one minute. Tell me about a transformative moment that you had that changed your whole career. You said, this is what leadership is about. This is what I need to do. Oh, my goodness. There's so many of them, but you know, ones that really that really stick out is understanding that when you're working with a diverse set of management skills and a diverse set of managers, you can't treat everybody the same. You want to treat everyone the same with respect to compensation and promotion and evaluation, but the way that you communicate with people uh, has to be different. You can't just say this is my style and this is the way I'm going to work. It's kind of a little bit like, you know, Muhammad's got to move to the mountain. The mountain's not going to move to Muhammad. If you want to get the most out of people, you have to work with them and communicate with them in the way that they, that they want to be communicated with. You know, some people like a very direct approach. Uh, some people like a more personal approach. And to the extent as a leader, you can understand what makes them tick. I think you're going to get the most out of, out of your management team. Anyone who wants to look up Brighton Park, uh, what's the website? It's bpc.com. bpc.com. There you have it. On that note, we're about to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about boards and the mistakes to avoid when you're dealing with boards as a CEO. Back in a few. Hi, this is Robert Reese back on The CEO Show with Mike Gregoire. This is where we speak with the CEOs who've reinvented the fabric of America. Mike has built, sold many, many companies. And one of the things you've been deeply involved with is being on the board. But right now you're on two specific boards, but throughout your whole career you've been on boards. And you have a lot of insights on mistakes that CEOs should avoid when dealing with the board. Sure. Well, it's a complicated topic, Robert, as you well know, especially with, with the, the, the guests that you interview. I think you probably get a lot of wisdom across the board, and I wouldn't profess to know everything, but I do find some pattern recognition with respect to boards, and I'll talk about it from a CEO perspective. First of all, I think it's great for a CEO, especially a publicly traded CEO, um, to get on another publicly traded board because I think you get a little bit more empathy uh, when you when you are on that board, you can see how that particular CEO interacts with the board. You can see how the rest of the board interacts with each other. And I think it's a great learning experience. And I know I personally became a better CEO when I started going on other boards other than the company that I was running. Now, the thing that I think most CEOs make mistakes on, and we can start from the beginning, is you know first-time CEOs. Um, one of the things that I always prided myself with is when I was not a CEO is I had a boss and I figured out what that boss wanted and I was going to overachieve and make that boss happy and try to be, you know, the best employee that that he had and somebody that could be completely trusted, have the right work ethic, have the right, uh, you know, the right, right way of interacting with him and the rest of the team and really understanding what the objectives of the company were and making sure that everything I do was working towards those objectives. 
And I kind of mastered that after doing it for like 15, 20 years. And then you become a CEO and you wake up the next day and you don't have one boss anymore. You have like nine to 12 bosses and they all have type A personalities and they all have diverse backgrounds. And the notion that you can make them happy is it's just impossible. Your job is not to make them happy. Your job is to make them understand. And it took me a little longer to catch on to that lesson than I would have probably liked. And it's one of the things I always pass on to first-time CEOs is your job is not to make the board happy. Your job is to make them understand. And at the end of the day, if they walk away from the boardroom and they absolutely understand the strategy of the company, they understand exactly what you're doing to enable that strategy, that's victory. And do you use the same strategy you had where you said, when you're a leader, you have to treat each person differently, communicate with them in a unique way that will resonate with them. Is that true with board members or is that not true? I think it's absolutely more apparent with board members because they don't have a lot of time. Um, They're used to operating at a very high scale. You don't get onto boards unless you have, you know, a very high intellect and a lot of experience in your, your, your willingness to suffer through long winded answers um, or you're, you're going to have a, a pretty good you know, detector of, is somebody trying to shine me on here? Or is this something that they're not really wanting to talk about? I think you're dealing with a more sophisticated audience. So you better bring your A-game to all communications with the board. And one of the other things I noticed is when you're a CEO, you're working at, if you're a CEO, you're probably working you know, 60, 70 hours a week. You're thinking about your company all day, every day. And then you have a board meeting that lasts perhaps a day, day and a half at most. And these people are showing in, getting a pre-read. But you know they've spent maybe four or five hours reading the pre-read, and now they're going to get into an hour and a half discussion on a topic that you've probably spent 200 hours on. I find CEOs, and I found myself doing this as well, is a little bit unempathetic. Like I think that they should understand a lot more than they do. And to the extent that I can slow down a little bit, bring them into my thinking, build some context for the situation, set the right level of priority and risk associated with the topic we're talking about, that the conversation becomes much richer. And the board will look back on you as being a lot more thoughtful, a lot more put together, and that you are definitely a good steward of, of shareholders' capital. It's interesting when you mention context, because I know you have what we call um, your, Mike's leadership principles, every moment matters. And I sense that you bring in all of these into Brighton Park. So one thing that I'm curious about is the concept of anticipate the future, which we'd spoken about before. And now that is critical when you're going in private equity and you're, you're bringing in a new company, you're trying to advance it bring everything up to scale. What is really the secret with anticipating the future? How do you go about it? You know, the thing about it is, first of all, you have to work tight with the CEO. As an investor, you have to really understand and be very curious of what is the CEO's vision of the company? Is it broad enough? Is the market big enough? You have to really be able to delve into those particular concepts. And you are investing in the future. Make no mistake about it. You are not investing in the past. So you have to not look at a company for what it is. 
you have to really look at a company for what it can be. And this is the difference between a great investor and a mediocre investor. Now, growth equity, the kind of investing that, that we do, it is, it is absolutely critical that we have a strong point of view of how this company is going to evolve over the next five years. And it can't be status quo. Um, I think if you invest in a company with a status quo mindset, I think you'd be a very, you're going to be a very unsuccessful investor. Just tell me now, everyone wants to know what's up and coming next in technology. And you've lived through so much of this. I always thought voice activation that really works could be a big thing. A lot of people are talking about AI, a lot um, um, augmented reality. What do you see as the big game changer coming down the pike in technology? Well, if we were to pick one thing, and I think it's pretty obvious, this whole the whole notion of uh, generative AI, and just think of the simple things. You you hit the nail on the head. Like everybody's tired of putting fingers on a keyboard. Um, they just want to be able to say what they want and get an answer back. I think that is coming along extraordinarily quickly. So I think most systems. Voice activation is going to be a very, uh, you know, a very mundane thing that it just is what it is. And that's the way you inter- interface with technology. You're going to be able to express your need and be able to receive that need uh, either visually, like on a screen, or have the machine talk back to you. I'll give, I'll give you an example. I have some art in my house here and I put in a, a, a system. If you walk if you walk by that art and just say that the code word is Josh, Josh, tell me about this art. It'll tell you about the artist. It'll tell you about when, when it was done. And is that a necessity? No. Is it nice to have? Yes. But think about, I don't know how to do an Excel spreadsheet. Um, I do not want to go to a website. I do not want to have to crawl through you know, the, the reams and try to figure out how to solve my problem. I either want to go into a chat bot and say, hey, how do I write this macro? Um, and it come back and tell me how to do it. Or even better, I write the macro and I give it to the chatbot and say, why does this not work? And it just fixes it for me. That is not five years away. That's five months away. Those are the kinds of things that are happening right now. And that's a profound change in the way that humans interact with computers. Well, Mike, a pleasure having you again on the CEO show. Great, Robert. Always a pleasure to talk to you.